Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a bonus episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thiele Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS. The article you're about to listen to, part of a series of long reads taken from the TLS, is narrated by the team at NOAA News Over Audio. You can listen to more TLS articles on the TLS website and in the NOAA app. You are listening to the TLS. This is the guidance of brains. How much is too much meritocracy? by Ferdinand Mount, the author of Mind the Gap, The New Class Divide in Britain, from the issue of July thirtieth, two 2021. It is the oldest, yet the latest thing. At the dawn of recorded political thought, meritocracy surfaces hot and strong in Plato's Republic. Quote, the eye of the ruler must not be pitiful towards his child, because he has to descend in the scale and become a husbandman or an artisan, just as there may be sons of artisans, who having an admixture of gold or silver in them are raised to honour and become guardians or auxiliaries. For an oracle says that when a man of brass or iron guards the state, it will be destroyed. This was translated by Benjamin Jowett in 1888. Plato adds, almost playfully, such is the tale, is there any possibility of making our citizens believe in it? Adrian Wooldridge's extraordinary and irresistible history of meritocracy, titled The Aristocracy of Talent, describes the repeated efforts over the centuries to persuade peoples all over the world to accept the principle and compel society to organise itself on lines where merit alone, not bloodlines or bank balances, decides who rules and gets top dollar. There seems to be no appreciable difference between the warning of Plato's oracle and the foreboding of Sir Robert Morant, the great Mandarin who masterminded the 1902 Education Act. In his words, the more we develop our society on democratic lines, without this scrupulous safeguarding of the guidance of brains in each and every sphere of national life, 
the more surely will a democratic state be beaten in the long run in the international struggle for existence. Nowhere was each generation more rigorously quality-sifted than in the China of the Ming dynasty, and for centuries earlier and later. The Italian Jesuit Matteo Ricci, cited by Wooldridge, describes the endless examination halls that dotted the country. Half palaces, half prisons, monuments to competition, containing thousands of cells for the examinees, and surrounded by high walls to prevent them from communicating with the outside world or with each other. Guards searched the candidates. Professional scribes copied their scripts to prevent the examiners recognizing anyone's handwriting, and the candidates were given numbers to disguise their identities. The system aroused abiding resentment. Classics of Chinese literature were devoted to satirizing its absurdities. Wooldridge tells us that the Taiping Rebellion, which occurred from 1850 to 1864 and cost more than 20 million lives, was largely provoked by frustrations with the civil service exam, and led by young men whose career hopes had been destroyed by failing it, just as the memoirs of modern French meritocrats are filled with tales of the horrors of the back. The system in China was abolished by imperial edict in 1905. Only to surface again in modern China. These days, the extra precaution against cheating is that the authorities fly drones over the exam hall to check for signals from smartphones. Wooldridge concedes that such frenetically competitive systems do have their downsides. He admits that Plato's vision is austere, a rather mild epithet, I think. In France, the Normalien and Inac. Who have ruled the country since the war, for all the economic achievements of the Trente Glorieuses, have in the crunch repeatedly shown themselves deaf to popular unrest and awkward in coping with it. The rise of the Gilets Jaunes is just the most recent example. Besides, societies can make impressive progress without setting up formal competitive systems. In what Wooldridge calls sponsored social mobility, from the Middle Ages onwards, if not before. Monarchs and bishops talent-spotted likely lads from modest backgrounds, educated them in their households, and raised them to positions of great power. For example, Thomas Becket, Thomas Wolsey, and Thomas Cromwell—the sticky ends to which so many of them came—constituting a drastic sort of performance review. In the 18th century, the more energetic Habsburg emperors, such as Maria Theresa, actually carried out six monthly performance reviews on their civil servants. Samuel Pepys, that most dynamic of public servants, was well aware of how the system worked. Wooldridge usually quotes him: "How little merit does prevail in the world, but only favour, and that for myself. Chance without merit brought me in, and that diligence only keeps me so." The trouble is that cognitive elites soon begin feathering their own nests and marking their own homework. Each new meritocracy has a way of hardening into a new aristocracy. Wooldridge reminds us that England's most famous schools were founded to give poor scholars a leg up, not just Eton, Harrow, and Winchester, but the great grammar schools of Edward the Sixth and Queen Elizabeth. But having been colonised by the upper middle classes and plutocrats, these schools are today the destination of choice for the new Asian elites. As I am writing this. In today's times, I see Eton College advertising the fact that no less than half the king's scholarships in 
have been awarded to Chinese boys educated at expensive English prep schools. In the U.S. today, elite colleges have more students from the top one percent than from the whole of the bottom sixty percent. At Harvard, the average parental income is, Wooldridge tells us, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year. Nor are the new elites content to be only famous for being rich. In a parody of Plato's Guardians, Davos Man now presents himself as a sage. Bill Gates issues a recommended summer reading list each year, and such grandstanding provides much scope for hypocrisy. At Google's annual camp to discuss climate change in 2019, the guests needed 114 private planes, plus a fleet of super yachts, to get them there on schedule. These pretensions to high culture do not exclude corruption on a mind-boggling scale. Not least in the enormous backhanders laid out to winkle your child into a top-flight school. This new inequality is reinforced and perpetuated by assortative mating, in which alpha males marry alpha females, as predicted by Aldous Huxley in the book titled *Brave New World*. The proportion of men with university degrees who married women with degrees nearly doubled in the U.S. between 1960 and 2005. More cruel still, the alphas tend to stay married, while the miseries of divorce are mostly reserved for the underclass, if they get round to marrying at all. In the U.S., only ten percent of women with degrees are single mothers, as opposed to sixty percent of women with high school education only. Divorce among college-educated women is thirty percent down on twenty years ago, while marriage breakups continue to climb among women who dropped out of high school. Worst of all, Wooldridge muses, the beneficiaries of this new nepotism are losing the sense of guilt that used to be the saving grace of their predecessors. It is hard to know which is the more repellent slogan: "Because you've earned it," or "Because you're worth it." One wonders whether modern societies in both the East and West are currently in danger of experiencing the same social sclerosis as paralyzed medieval Venice. Where the social mobility that had made the Serenissima great gradually ground to a halt, as the elites rigged the system in favour of their children, so that by 1315 the authorities published a book called Il Libro de Ora, a social register intended to freeze the elite forever, a moment haughtily dubbed La Serata, meaning the closure. Waldridge is the political editor of the Economist and author of its Budget column. He is indeed a worthy successor to Walter Badgett and to Badgett's father-in-law James Wilson, who founded the magazine and also devised India's first income tax. The aristocracy of talent is unfailingly entertaining, effortlessly drawing on a wealth of anecdote and statistics. Wooldridge quotes liberally from the most scorching critiques of meritocracy. From Walter Lippmann's indictment of IQ tests in the 1920s to Michael Young's incomparable satire, *The Rise of Meritocracy*, published in 1958, in which the word itself makes its debut, much like Whig and Tory first being deployed as pejoratives. He sets out Young's exploration of what a fully realized meritocracy would mean for the losers, though he does not quote what seems to me the most telling passage. Quote, As for the lower classes, their situation is different too. Today, all persons, however humble, know they have had every chance. 
they are tested again and again. If they have been labelled dunce repeatedly, they cannot any longer pretend. Are they not bound to recognise that they have an inferior status? Not as in the past because they have been denied opportunity, but because they are inferior? For the first time in human history, the inferior man has no buttress for his self-regard. Wooldridge does remind us that Young's book ends with a populist revolt against the elites, a revolt led by a breakaway faction of the elite, among them graduates of Balliol College, the alma mater of Boris Johnson. As the author notes, the only things Young got wrong was that this uprising has taken place a decade earlier than he prophesied, and has been led by firebrands of the new right rather than the old left. Wooldridge admits that meritocrats can be not only intolerably smug and conceited, but also blind to the practical disadvantages of their wheezes, nowhere more so than in the case of the golden generation of the McNamaras and Bundys, who brought us the Vietnam War, and were so excoriated in David Halberston's book titled The Best and the Brightest, published in 1972. There are occasions, though, where the author lets off the cocksure meritocrats too lightly. He praises Thomas Babington Macaulay and Macaulay's brother-in-law, Charles Trevelyan, for introducing meritocracy to the civil service in India and Britain, without mentioning Trevelyan's willful negligence during the Great Famine, during which his almost religious belief in the free market condemned millions of Irishmen to starvation or emigration. Waldridge does, however, mention Macaulay's notorious Minute of 1835, which proposed to educate an elite that would be Indian in blood and colour, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals and in intellect. Surely the apogee of imperial arrogance. And he seems unduly admiring, too, of the meritocratic revolutions of Oliver Cromwell and Napoleon Bonaparte. The carrière au vert au talents is a splendid principle, but the actual legacies of all this social mobilising were millions of dead across Europe, and a political instability so profound that it could end only in the restoration of a revamped ancien regime. Throughout, Wooldridge never loses faith in the principle of meritocracy as the key driver of modernity. Driver is typical merito jargon, taking it for granted that society stands in constant need of a push. He begins by asking, is there a better system for organising the world? And he ends, nearly 400 pages later, by reasserting that the best way forward lies in the meritocratic idea. The answer, he insists, is not more meritocracy, but wiser meritocracy. The trouble is that previous meritocratic revolutions didn't go far enough. So what is all this to mean in practice? Wooldridge recommends a revival of IQ testing, as well as powers for the existing school academies to select their pupils at the age of 11, plus free university education for national merit scholars, hidden Einsteins who are to be recruited from poorer neighbourhoods. Those who don't make it will be able to opt for upscaled vocational education, that is, to enjoy a new parity of esteem, by means that are not entirely clear to me. He also wants to see a thoroughgoing reform of politics, designed to keep the hot breath of the masses from the collars of their betters. In his words, a bit less democracy is better democracy. Political parties should wrest power back from their members. 
governments should avoid any further referendums and strangle direct democracy wherever it threatens to impede the rule of the meritocrats. But isn't all this likely to inflame the resentment of the losers even further? Besides, there are enough catastrophic blunders on the record of the mandarins to suggest that, however brilliant they may be, it is not wise to leave them in control of the levers unattended by checks and balances, not least those provided by public opinion. On the basis of Wooldridge's marvellous sottisier, one could just as well argue the other way, that it was the democratic revolution that never went far enough, that power and revenue should be returned to elected authorities at the most local level, that schemes for reforming institutions or for giant infrastructure projects of the sort that obsess Boris Johnson should be subjected to close public scrutiny by the people who are going to have to live with them. At the very least, we need to reflect on the complexity of political action. Meritocracy is an admirable principle, but it is not the only game in town. Businesses thrive on competition, but they also depend on intricate networks of cooperation. Societies flourish not just on capitalism's famous waves of creative destruction, but also on the steadiness provided by the rule of law, and by institutions that strengthen the sense of community. These other values are not alternative, as Wooldridge calls them, but complementary and intertwined. Unless you want a ruthless rat race, equality of opportunity cannot rule on its own without going hand-in-hand hand with other sorts of equality, of access to justice, to healthcare and education, social arrangements designed to suit us all as we are, not merely as vehicles to speed the fortunate few to their proper destination. Wooldridge quotes Donald Trump's boast, I love the poorly educated, which is creepy and cynical, especially coming from someone who regularly denounces those who disagree with him as losers. All the same, the thought does offer something of a challenge to the self-absorption of the meritocrats. If you can't love the losers, why should they love you? The aristocracy of talent is a serious treat from first to last. Not the least of its pleasures are the possibilities of disagreement that it provokes. You've been listening to the TLS. This was The Guidance of Brains. How much is too much meritocracy? By Ferdinand Mount. From the issue of July the 30th, 2021. It was read by Martin Buchanan for Noah. Thank you for listening. You'll find more audio articles on the TLS website as well as in the NOAA News Over Audio app. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. And don't forget to listen and subscribe to our weekly show with me and Lucy Dallas.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.